Take your Bibles now and go with me to the book of John, chapter 3. John chapter 3, most of us will recognize immediately. We know that this is one of the most famous passages and especially one of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. And that's always dangerous ground for a preacher to come to a passage that everybody knows and usually that familiarity with the passage leads to a general listen with one ear rather than two when we come to talk about it. But I rather suspect there is some foundational, fundamental, and really driving message for us out of this passage today. A number of years ago, Teresa and I were young enough to have children that needed to go spend a week at a time with their grandparents. And we really enjoyed those weeks when that happened. And uh, this particular one, as best we can tell, was somewhere around deer season. We lived in New Mexico, and deer season in New Mexico looks a lot different than it does in southeast Texas. But we loaded them up and drove to Junction, Texas, which was roughly halfway between where we lived and where my parents lived. And my mom drove up, and we did the exchange, and then Teresa and I headed back towards where we lived. And on the way back, we we witnessed one of those West Texas thunderstorms that we had grown up with. We don't get this kind of stuff in Southeast Texas. There's a benefit of having trees, and we don't see these thunderstorms here like we used to see them out there because, as you know, in West Texas, there aren't any trees, and if there happened to be any, then somebody brought them in. And so you can see thunderstorms developing on the horizon, sometimes hours before they get to you, if they get to you at all. And in this particular case, as we drove back towards West Texas and southeastern New Mexico, we watched for dozens of miles this light show in the thunderstorm ahead of us. And as dark came and all we were able to see at most points was this lightning that was constant. I don't mean like a flash and then a letdown and then another flash a few moments later. It was just constant. It was just amazing to watch. And it was one of those light shows that moved me in a number of different ways. And I'm going to finish that illustration at the end of this message to let you know some of the significance of it. But but there are those times that we see God's hand in nature and his handiwork in nature where it seems to move us beyond the common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill living that we fall into on a day-to-day basis, and, and we're struck with the divine and his, hand, and his handiwork around us. Seeing signs like that provide us foundations for our faith. Not, not that we worship those things, But they have a way of pointing us to the presence of God among us and the power of God among us. And that's where we enter this passage today because here comes a guy named Nicodemus and most of us are very familiar with this story and I hope to put a bit of a twist on it for you today. I suspect it will be anyway. But Nicodemus comes into this situation and into this particular passage and he shows us a good truth for us to hang on to and it is this. Please don't miss this. Simply seeing the handiwork and the signs of God does not mean that we believe God. 
Now, all through this passage or or this uh, series where we have been working our way through John's gospel, we went through it once already looking at the signs of the miracles that Jesus did that underscore that he is in fact the son of God, God in the flesh. And now we're working our way back through to see what he has to say to us about himself. But as we've done this, we, we have been confronted with the holy. We have been in, confronted with the reality that this Jesus is not some ordinary guy. The power of God at work through him has enabled him to do signs, as John calls them, that point out to people that he is not the ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of guy. So we get to John 3. And in this, the basic truth that I I think we will find today is that Nicodemus represents that part of modern Christianity. He he was by no means a Christian. Matter of fact, part of what drives this whole thing is that I don't believe Nicodemus was a believer at all, at least not at the saving level. But he represents that part of Christianity in our day that would hold up religious living as evidence of righteousness in somebody's life. Well, let's show you what I mean. And as we do this, I'm going to just take it a piece at a time. We're going to just, this is more of a teaching thing today than it is a formal sermon. And I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to take some time at the very beginning to lay the historical groundwork as we work through this. And then at the very end of this, we're going to pull it together and see if we don't have something that we can wear out of this place that changes how we live for Jesus Christ. Here's the basic point. Religious living and religious activity is insufficient for gaining entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Simply living out stuff that is religious does not mean that one has the presence of Christ in their life. So what's going on in these verses Well, first of all, we find out a little bit about this guy. And in verse 1, we have three basic statements that give us a composite picture of who Nicodemus is. So verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Three basic statements, each of which combine to help us to see that this guy, Nicodemus, is in fact the perfect representative for traditional Judaism to come up against Jesus. So here's where I start off with that part that twists this passage a little bit for us. Most of the time we come to this passage and we treat it as if Nicodemus is an honest seeker after Jesus. Verse 2, and I'll come back to verse 1 in a moment, but verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we often take this. Matter of fact, we usually want to take this and give him the benefit of the doubt and act like he is this honest seeker of Jesus. He comes at night, and we've, we've built this whole uh, framework to help support our perspective on that, that he comes at night because he's, you know, he is an important guy, and he don't necessarily want people to see him. And uh, I think we misinterpret that. He is not, in what I believe is the appropriate way to approach this, he is not an honest seeker at all. He is antagonistic to Jesus. Nicodemus comes to mix it up with Jesus. Now, 
we're going to see this a little bit as we go, and I'll try to hang some stuff on that for you. But let, let's go ahead and kind of nail down who he is. And it helped, all of this helps underscore what I'm talking about here. First of all, it says in verse 1 that he was a man of the Pharisees. And we need to understand who the Pharisees were. And without going into this long, elaborate explanation of historical context, I'll just say this to you, that the Pharisees started off roughly 150 years before the time of Jesus, and they stepped up in the face of Hellenization, of the spread of Greek and the Greek culture and Greek philosophy and all that stuff across with Alexander the Great and those who came after him uh, as they pushed evangelistically their Greek philosophy across the known world, these certain Jews reacted against that and resisted that. They were called the Hasidim, excuse me, that's actually a problem with the way I'm talking there. Um, They were this group of people who had set themselves up to be the protectors of true Jewish religion. And as that Hellenization process swept across them and that constant pressure on them to give into Greek mythology and Greek philosophy and all those kind of things. This select group of Jews stood up against those other Jews who were accepting that. That group of Jews that I'm talking about, that small group came to be known as the separate ones. It's the word Pharisees that we take into the New Testament. So they started off in an antagonistic kind of a way. Now, they would have said, no, we're just protecting the true religion. But the problem with them is the same problem that we have with us, and that is when we start getting protective, we start getting religious. And so they started hanging interpretations because what they really wanted was to keep the law the way it was supposed to. That was their primary focus. We want to keep the law. We want to keep it holy. We want to keep it pure. And so in the process of doing that, they started having these interpretations of what the law meant. And so when it came to the Sabbath, uh, keep the Sabbath for it is holy, they started having to lay out, okay, so what does holy mean? And what what does that look like? And so they had all these interpretations that they attached to the law. They started allowing, as religion tends to do, they started allowing their interpretations to rise to the same level as authority of Scripture. And they started cutting people up with it. So by the time we get to first century Jewish life in this particular John chapter 3, the Pharisees were that group of people who had set themselves up as the religious authorities in charge of keeping their faith pure. One of the reasons that I believe that this is an antagonistic encounter is because of the context in which John puts it. You remember chapter 2, and I know that it's been a while since we were in chapter 2, like last week, and so let me just remind you that the first part of chapter 2 is the first sign that Jesus uh, performed, which is the turning water into wine. And hard on the heels of the turning water into wine story, John inserts this story about Jesus as he cleanses the temple. And Jesus goes into the temple and he takes an authority on himself that the Pharisees would have rejected outright. And as he steps in there and starts clearing out all of the garbage of that, he takes a position that they have not given him. And it chaps them. Does that communicate? They're not happy about that at all. And so they come after him. You remember that from last week. They come after him. Who do you think you are to do this? You may remember that last week when we got to that point, and I 
threw that out there. Who do you think you are to take this on yourself? That it was one of those challenges, and it's the only time in the Gospels that we see that Jesus seems to lose the argument because he goes silent after that. So coming out of that, we fall right into this. Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a name that is Greek. It's, it's an interesting, it's almost like a paradox that here's a guy who is a part of the Pharisaic element of the life of religion in Jerusalem, or in, in, uh, yeah, in Jerusalem at this point, and he has a Greek name. Seems strange. You go back and research that, and basically what you'll find is not very many Jewish leaders had a Greek name, and especially not the name of Nicodemus. What we do is we, we work all the way backward, and he comes from what really is a royal, warring kind of a family. In other words, he comes as a fighter for that which he believes. And then John throws that last element on here, a ruler of the Jews. And to save time, I'm just going to boil that down to this statement. Nicodemus was elite. We might say it this way. He was the man. This was no small guy who steps into the mix with Jesus here. He comes at night because that's the most profitable, logical time to come for an occasion like this. It's it's not necessarily because he's afraid somebody's going to see him. He doesn't care if somebody sees him. As a matter of fact, he's coming representing people. If we understand this as an engagement that is confrontational rather than giving him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he was a believer, Jesus is going to expose that he was not a believer at all. That's the whole point of this. So we don't give him that benefit of the doubt. And then we begin to see that this guy comes in and he is the perfect representative for all of the Jewish people who don't really get it with Jesus. Verse 1. And then verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, okay, let me stop before I get you any further into this. Let me make sure that we get this part right. All that I said up to this point, we pull it onto this. Y'all like crabs? Crab gumbo and all that kind of stuff. Is it true that a crab skeleton is on the outside? Hello? Any biologist out there? That's true? Okay. Just checking. I figured people from Louisiana would know that better than I would. Um, so, that, so that's, so that's uh, me neither. Um, so that's kind of the deal with Pharisees and all that Nicodemus brings to this. Their religion was external. The, the hardness of them was on the Outside, everything that they did in the religious vein of their lives was seen on the outside. Their whole perspective on the what we would call the religious or the righteous life, the kingdom of God as he refers to it here, their whole perspective on that was if you just do the right things and not do the wrong things, doesn't matter what's inside. They were kind of crabby in their religion, if you will. Just get the outside right, And you don't have to worry too much about the inside. And we're going to see that Jesus takes him to task with that. But he comes first, this guy does, 
And it sounds like he's genuine, but clearly something's not right. Let me take you back to our time as parents when our kids were younger. Our middle child is a son. His name is Colin. And he's the one that a friend of mine nicknamed Demon Child when he was very young, just to give you a point of reference on Colin and where he was. But Colin had this, he, he developed this practice. And it worked at first, as those tend to happen. But we noticed that he fell into this pattern where every once in a while he would come in out of nowhere and he would run up to his mama. I was going to say he's probably eight or nine years old, something like that, just old enough. Um, yeah, well, so he come, he would come and, and he would say to his mama, he'd get up and, to, and then he would say, mama. And she'd say, what Colin? I love you. And he'd turn around and run off. And the first, I don't know, a few times that he did that, it worked, man. She just melted. That's my boy. He loves my boy. Loves what a good kid. And then she started realizing, wait a minute, that's not Colin at all. So we, start, we started checking out what was going on. And usually when he would come up, and that got into be a habit for him. But there, there was a little time that he would do that. And we go and see, well, in the background, he'd done something or was doing something really wrong. And so he would come in and he would like, like plow the ground ahead of time for forgiveness. That's what Nicodemus does with Jesus here. Notice how he loads up this, well, it could be that he's being genuine, but Jesus is going to see through it pretty quickly. Verse 2 again, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, there's the first one. He uses a, terminal, a, a term here that underscores what is true about Jesus. Rabbi, teacher. It's an elevated position of honor in their society, especially in their religious society. He being a Pharisee and he being a ruler of the Jews would have known that. By the way, it also happens to be one of the techniques of first century Jewish debate and confrontation is to begin with this flowery language about how wonderful that person is. It's that conversation that we have. Say, well, you know, you really do a good job with cooking, but you know there's a butt coming in there somewhere. But, but you know, I just hate it when you cook or whatever. That's kind of the deal. Rabbi, it, it sounds flowery. It sounds good. But you know there's a hook in it somewhere. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Okay, now let's stop for a second. Because here's part of the language problem that we get in English. Because the word we know there, it could be stronger. There is a word that Nicodemus could have used here that would have been one of those we know. As sure as I'm drawing breath right now, I know this to be true. That's not the word that he uses. He uses a word here that actually is softened down to observable stuff. So in other words, we have seen these things. We know it with quotation marks around the word know. It's flowery. It's meant to set up. We have observed, if you will, that you are a teacher come from God. You see, those are the words that are going to hang him with Jesus before it's over with. So let them uh, stand out for you for a moment. 
So let me read the whole statement. Now, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what we have at this point is that he has now come and he has engaged Jesus in a battle of wits. This is a confrontation. This is not about Nicodemus searching for the truth. This is about Nicodemus coming and trying to expose Jesus. Don't forget, he's just come out of the temple and having cleared the temple, and he has now that reputation with this Pharisaic crowd that says he's not with us, he's against us, he's going to cause trouble between us and Rome. And so now they get this representative par excellence, and they trot him into Jesus, and he lays it out, and the battle is engaged. It's a battle of wits. Here's what Jesus is about to teach him. Never make the mistake of getting into a battle of wits if you don't have any. Because Jesus is about to work him over, as we find. So Jesus seizes the initiative, and Jesus seizes the spiritual high ground with what he says. And then he just bears down on him. Verse 3, And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of of God. Now, let's make sure that we get this. Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus has not asked. That is where he cuts into this attempt to paint himself, uh, to, uh, Nicodemus's attempt to paint Jesus into a corner. Jesus doesn't allow Nicodemus to drive the conversation that is intended to cut his knees out from under him. Jesus jumps and he cuts to the heart of the matter for this guy. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How do you see the kingdom of God? Really? We see what Jesus has done here is he has cut to the heart of the difference between these two guys and between their approach. Because Nicodemus comes and he's the crabby religious guy. Crabby in both senses. That external skeleton that says just do the right things, don't do the wrong things. But what happens with people who do that, they tend to be sour. We don't have any of those in Baptist churches. Well, this Baptist church. And there's no way out of this hole. So Nicodemus represents that crowd. It's just do the right things, don't do the wrong things, safeguard the religion. But Jesus comes from a different crowd. Jesus comes from a whole different perspective. Jesus is thoroughly divine in the way he approaches this, unless one is born again. You see the difference? The crabby Christian, it's all up to them. I do the right things, don't do the wrong things. It's a me-centered, works-based, get it done. Before you're too hard on those people, you need to own what's ours in this because all of us tend to slip into this. We we reduce the Christian life till it's very manageable for us. In order for us to do that, we tend to make it do's and don'ts. But where Jesus comes from, it's not up to us. This is a whole big theological debate, and I'm not going to try to even step into it, much less settle it this morning. But the reality is this born-again thing, um, if, if God's not the one driving that, it doesn't happen. You can't birth yourself. 
It's an interesting picture that Jesus draws for him here. It's so interesting that we find something with Nicodemus, that if we're inclined to give him credit in space, then verse 4 sounds like he's confused. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So let me just make sure that, again, I'm, I'm suggesting, I'm strongly arguing for this is a confrontation. It's not an honest approach from Nicodemus. Of course, Nicodemus, as the person that he is and the training that we, he would have had, he would not need to ask the question that he asks here if he got it. He, he's not confused. He's dismissive of Jesus. It's the same thing that we saw back in the temple, and you can go back and read that cleansing of the temple thing, but in this case, Nicodemus steps into the response that Jesus gave him because now Nicodemus is reeling from what Jesus said in the previous verse. And so as a way to try to get the upper hand in the argument, again, this is all classical first century uh, confrontational kind of dialogue. And so he employs this tactic where he tries to shed doubt on what Jesus has just said to make him look stupid. By the way, you remember in the cleansing of the temple? Destroy this temple in three days, I will be, or it'll be restored. You remember that? Even if I can't quote it right? And they say to him, this classic response, well, it took 46 years to build it. How are you going to do it in three days? And Jesus doesn't say anything. And they say, we got you. So he tries the same tactic here. Let's, it, it's just, Jesus comes now with a full frontal assault on this crabby Christianity version of righteousness in verse 5. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't even bother trying to speak directly to Nicodemus' question because he recognizes that it's an attempt to divert. And Jesus nails the principle in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This principle emerges that each of these different approaches create their own offspring. And their offspring are just like their parents. In this case, Water birth, the physical, external, religious-based thing that says it's all up to me to get it done. But the spirit birth is the one that says this is of God. Here's why I think it's important. All of this stuff is important because of this. Nicodemus has said in his opening shot, we can see that you're a teacher of God. Nobody can do the miracles that you do unless they're from God. And Jesus, with these few words, has set the table to show him just how much he doesn't believe that. So we take another step. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus says to him, here's a sign. You don't believe, you don't understand if that's really true. Let me just lay it out for you this way, verses 7 and 8. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And with this, Jesus says, let me just give you an example, Nicodemus. You say that you believe that I'm from God, but you don't really believe. You remember the questions that I've laid out for us as we've worked our way through this? Do you believe in Jesus? And if you do, how much do you believe in Jesus? That now comes full front for Nicodemus. You say you believe in me, but you don't believe enough in me to really believe that I am from God as you claim. So let me throw this example, he says. The wind, you know it's there. The reason you know it's there is because you can see the effects of it. You can feel it on your skin. You can feel it blowing your hair. Those of us who don't don't have hair, we forgot what that's like. But you can see it in the trees. Yesterday, yesterday evening, Teresa and I were sitting out in the backyard. You remember, we grew up in West Texas. There are no trees out there. If there are any, it's because a tornado blew them in from somewhere else. And we were sitting in the backyard, and she was just looking up at the trees. And she said, I just love to sit out here and watch the wind blow the tops of the trees, and they just sway back and forth. It's so peaceful. Jesus uses that analogy and that picture here to say, You know that the wind's out there. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. But you know that it's there. The evidence is there. So you accept it as true. But he takes another step with that to say, essentially, but you don't really believe that about me. You say you do. But you don't really believe that. So verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus shows that he doesn't get it. Nicodemus said to him, then how can these things be? And Jesus slams him. I mean, this is one of those things where Jesus gives him the figurative throat punch that ends the whole thing. Jesus is not done with him, but Nicodemus is done after this. Verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the, the teacher of Israel? You're the hot shot. You're the representative. You're the high and mighty they send into me. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Jesus is saying, this, my friend, is basic. But your religion won't let you believe. I suspect somewhere right about here is where Nicodemus wishes he hadn't showed up. And Jesus, little Jesus, meek and mild, turns out to be Jesus on the loose. And he is dangerous. Verses 11 through 13, Jesus just takes it another level. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not believe our testimony. See what I've been saying all along? Jesus knew that was true of him. He didn't really believe so, verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? <laughs> no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And boy, has Jesus said a mouthful there. What he's done now is he has hung Nicodemus on his own words. You say that you believe that I am from God because of what I do? 
but you don't believe that I'm really who I am. Hmm. Verses 14 through 18 represent the heart of the gospel message. Now, this is where verse 16 comes in. This is the famous verse, 16 and 17, if you really went deep into Awanas. This is the part that we get, and we often lift it out of Scripture, and we use it in ways that it's probably okay for us to use. But when we divorce it from its context, it weakens it a little bit. Jesus has just taken on the leader, a leader, if not the leader, of Judaism in his day and has fundamentally shifted the ground on what it means to be a child of God. And so Jesus now goes in for the kill. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, Nicodemus, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. (laughs) So now let's do the application part of this. We'll finish off with the last few verses in a minute. What Jesus has done is he's taken the words of this attacker, antagonist, and he has helped him see that the guy hangs himself with his own words. If you believe because of the signs that I've done, then you see the kingdom of God. But if you don't really believe then you can't see. If all you have is an exoskeleton Christianity, if you're a crabby Christian and it's all about do's and don'ts, then you're going to miss out on the kingdom of God. That's a huge statement. That's not only a problem for Christians in our age, that's a problem for Christians from the time Jesus said those words till now. We, We have this this romance with dumbing down Christianity into just a bunch of stuff you do. But Jesus is talking through here. You got to be born of the Spirit. That's more than just having a new birth where you get into the kingdom of heaven. That is letting the Spirit guide you through your entire life. See, Nicodemus didn't need the Holy Spirit to do his religious stuff. It's just a bunch of stuff. Christians in our day so easily fall into a mechanical Christianity. So let me go back, and let's just put it in each of our our laps. What signs has God given you in your own life? What, What divine activity in your own life has paved the way for you to believe? Yesterday, again yesterday, Teresa and I were at the house and we were both working, doing different things out in the yard. I was playing with fire in the backyard (laughs) and uh, she was doing some other things. At one point I got on the mower and I was riding around looking like I was busy and uh, 
she came in, or out to me, and she said, hey, we're going to have to run up to the hospital. And I thought, I think I'm okay. No, she had been getting some texts from Melissa Judice and Rachel Crater. Many of you know her. She grew up in this church. Uh, you know, she's been in the hospital for a couple of weeks because she was preeclamptic with her unborn child. And so yesterday her numbers got to the point that they decided they needed to take the child early. And so uh, Andrew was born yesterday, weighed about four pounds and some handful of ounces. But, but it's the process of this. So we went up to the hospital, and, and going up there under those circumstances took me back almost two years now when our daughter, Lauren, was, I don't remember how many weeks along she was, but uh, she was preeclamptic and then became all of a sudden in one day had eclampsia full-blown and passed out at home. We got the phone call. Teresa told her to go to the hospital. Uh, we got the phone call that we needed to be there, so we jumped in the car. We're driving to Conroe, and, uh, and it was a dark moment for us. I had no clue how serious it was until we got there, and the doctors and the nurses were telling us this is extremely serious. As they said of Rachel's baby yesterday, that baby's in a hostile environment. We've got to take him out now if he's going to survive. And those words were bouncing around in our heads. And it took me, again, as we went to the waiting room to see the family, and by that time he had already been born, but it took me back two years in that time, almost two years, when we were there and the nurse said to us, you know, your daughter is not out of the woods and she may not make it through the night. We're just going to have to see. And so Teresa and I camped out in the, in the waiting room. Our grandson was fine. But now is our daughter who is not well. Through the course of that night, God showed himself to me in a number of ways. There was another old couple sharing the waiting room with us that night. You know, it's a band, band of brothers in that kind of situation, right? Most of you have been in situations like that. So we started up a conversation. I just got to tell you, I didn't want it. I wasn't there for a relationship. <laughs> this guy turned out to be a pastor, and he had the same situation going on with his kid, mostly the same situation. And God showed up for us. You know, those situations like that where God shows up for you, that's the foundation for belief. He shows himself to us in ways that take us beyond a do-don't-do Christianity to spirit-filled Christianity. It's, it's the seed of belief as God ministers to you in the difficult times of your life. So what are those times? Maybe if, I could, if I was teaching a class and I could assign homework and you're grade dependent on it, I would send you home with this assignment. Go write a page worth of here's what God has taught me that helps me believe him. Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much do you believe in him? Enough to do and don't do or enough to surrender to him? As our musicians come up, let me finish with these words. I go back to that night when Teresa and I were driving. The light show that we had 
One of the reasons I still remember that is because I had some thoughts that pushed me a little bit. See, I grew up in West Texas. I've seen, I guess, dozens, maybe hundreds of those thunderstorms like that at a distance that come in, and they're beautiful to watch, especially as it turns to night, and all you just see is lightning fire going off all over the place. It's an incredible thing to watch. But the reason that it it kind of made an impact on me is I know what happens underneath those things. And I've lived through a lot of those kind of storms where it really looks nice until it gets on top of you. And those storms like that often carry tornadoes with them. And those storms like that usually have hail with them, baseball, softball-sized hail sometimes. And we were out driving down the road, and I was thinking, we're driving into that, and there's no telling because now it's dark. You don't get to see whether there's a tornado in that or not. There was a certain fear that started jumping up in me at that particular point. And God began to calm that for me. Here's, here's, you know, you've heard me say this many times, some of you have. Here's, this is kind of where it started for me. It, it, God essentially communicated to me, I haven't brought you this far to drop you now. I'll tell you something, he brought me through a lot of garbage. And I didn't have to be afraid of the storm or what it brought. You see, what Nicodemus doesn't get is that his external religion doesn't drill in the storm. But when you're born of the Spirit, Jesus says, I'll take you through the storm. I'll give you peace in the middle of the storm. It's alive. It's, it's, not, it, it's not plastic. It's real. Jesus finishes this off, verses 19 through 21, and he says, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world. And by the way, um, Nicodemus didn't come asking for judgment. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And with that... Jesus lays the foundation for some of the other words that we find like in Matthew where he says, see, you know, so live in Christ so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know what Jesus says with that, with these verses? You're the light show. God at work in your life, not the religious garbage, but God at work in your life, the real stuff, is the light show that others see that give them reason to believe in him. See, Jesus is thoroughly evangelistic all the way through the Gospels. So how is it with you today? Let me just ask you to bow your heads, if you will. We come into this time of invitation. Here is the invitation for you. Have you locked in on an approach to the Christian life or the religious life that is all about the do's and the don'ts but there's no spirit in it. Are you looking to somebody else to be the light show when Jesus has given you that responsibility? The deal is you can't be the light that he calls you to be unless he 
we'll find later in John's gospel, says he is the light of the world. Unless he's living out through you, it, it just doesn't work. So do you know Jesus personally? If you don't, you ought to change that today. I'd love to tell you how. We got a lot of people here. I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about how your life can be totally changed to God's glory. And you'll see the kingdom of God. Many of us have long since made the choice to do that, but somehow we've let it degenerate into just a bunch of do's and don'ts, a dead religion. And we are Nicodemus. All that needs to change. Today could be the day. Now could be the time. And as we go into this invitation, I encourage you to do business with God where you are. If you need help with that, I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you. We have other staff here, deacons here. I'd love to just visit with you about the life that Jesus offers. Whatever it is, don't leave here until you get that straight. And Jesus, we ask that you take the time that we have now. Be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.